Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming. We'll uh, get this afternoon's briefing kicked off. Uh, my name is Matt Weibel. I'm the Director of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, thank you to those of you who are with us in the room and those who are live streaming. And also thank you to the Cato staff who work behind the scenes to put this together. We're here today to talk about the Farm Bill and its various subsidy programs. If you'd like more information from Cato on the Farm Bill, subsidies, or any other topic, feel free to grab me after the briefing. We'd be happy to be a resource for you on any issue. The, the title of today's briefing is Costly Crops, Opportunities for Reform in the Farm Bill. Uh, this year's Farm Bill, HR2, the Agriculture and Nutrition Act of 2018, is more than 600 pages long and could end up with a price tag of more than $1 trillion over 10 years. The bill contains numerous corporate welfare and social welfare programs paid for at the expense of the taxpayer and our environment. As you'll hear today, there are plenty of ways to reform these subsidy programs. And even though the amendment deadline has technically passed, uh, Rules Committee will still accept amendments until they meet. Um, as of yesterday morning, four had been offered, and as of the last time I checked a few minutes ago, 96 had been offered. So we have three panelists joining us today. Uh, kicking off the event will be Scott Faber. He is Vice President of Government Affairs for the Environmental Working Group. He's been a leader in efforts to educate the public about farm policy and food safety since the 1990s. And he was involved in efforts to reform the Farm Bill of 2002 and 2008. Scott and his team at Environmental Working Group have done tremendous work uh, in increasing awareness about farm subsidies and the impact the Farm Bill has on the environment. Uh, Environmental Working Group's website actually has an incredible database of the various forms of farm subsidies, and you can pick on your state um, and your county level and see what subsidies have gone there. It's a pretty incredible tool. Next, we'll have Darren Baxt. Uh, he's the Senior Research Fellow in Agricultural Policy for the Heritage Foundation. Darren has done extensive work on farm policy, focusing on trade, subsidies, and other food policy issues. He is the Heritage Foundation's leader on efforts to reshape the Farm Bill. And finally, we'll have Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute. He's the director of downsizinggovernment.org, excuse me, the editor of downsizinggovernment.org, and he is Cato's expert on farm policy, taxes, basically any fiscal issue. Uh, and then for a housekeeping announcement, we'll have time for Q&A at the end, but please hold your questions until everybody's finished their presentation. And we'll go ahead and start with Scott. Um, did you want me to come up to the podium? Yeah. yeah okay. Terrific. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm really happy to say we're talking about farm policy and not food safety while you're all eating your lunch. <laughs> um, but uh, if you have any questions about, uh, well, I guess it's too late now. Um, so uh, I've put on your chairs a little handout that uh, I'd be referring to. Um, I thought before we have a conversation about farm subsidies, it might help just to bring us all up to speed on some farm subsidy basics. And um, if you want more information, um, we do have a great website, farm.ewg.org, that tracks all of the subsidy data that the government makes available to us, which is about half of all subsidies. I'll talk a little bit about that. 
Um, and uh, there are some excellent CRS reports that uh, Randy Schnaff and the CRS team have developed. I'm happy to point you to those or email them to you. Um, they're also really great resources. And if you don't already have Randy's number, you should get it because you're probably going to need it over the next week or so. He's a fantastic resource. So um, just, to, just to kind of give you a little bit of background, there are basically two different kinds of farm subsidies. Um, there are commodity subsidies or Title I subsidies, as, as they're sometimes referred to, um, and then and crop insurance subsidies. So the first thing I'm going to talk about are what are commodity subsidies? Well, there, in general, there are two kinds of commodity subsidies, one that's called uh, the Price Loss Coverage Program and the other that's called the Agricultural Risk Coverage Program. I'm going to quickly walk through those, and then I'm going to describe what, how crop insurance subsidies work, and then we're going to talk about a little bit about how those subsidies are distributed and some of the uh, challenges posed by the Farm Bill and some of the amendments that you might be considering uh, next week. Um, the Price Loss Coverage Program, the first charge, really simple. Um, Congress sets in statute a guaranteed price for uh, a number of lucky commodities. Um, the government makes up the difference between that statutorily set price and the market price. There are some limits. Um, you can only collect those subsidies on what are called, on 85% of what are called base acres or what you might think of as historical plantings. And those payments are subject to a means test and to a payment limit but we'll talk more about how the payment limit uh, is easy to avoid. Um, moving to the second chart, the Agricultural Risk Coverage Program, the ARC program, is a little bit more complicated. The payment makes up the difference between what's called benchmark county revenue for that crop. I'm not going to make you do the math on the right on the right hand side of this chart, and the average county and the and the actual county revenue for that crop in that year. Um, and farmers have to make at the start of the last farm bill and presumably will at the start of the next farm bill a one-time election whether they want to receive uh, PLC payments or ARC payments. So, but uh, as again, like PLC payments, ARC payments are subject to a means test and are subject to a payment limit, again, that is, can be uh, creatively avoided. Again, we'll talk about that as well. Then there's crop insurance. So crop insurance is different. Uh, in some important ways. One, uh, crop insurance premium subsidies flow to many more kinds of farms. So you saw the list of, of crops that are eligible for commodity subsidies on that first chart. More than 130 crops are eligible to receive crop insurance premium subsidies. And it's different in that farmers have to put some skin in the game. PLC and ARC are free to the farmer. With crop insurance, the government pays 62% of the crop insurance premium. That means the farmer pays the balance 38% on average. Another important difference, and then we'll talk a bit, uh, if you can flip to the next chart, just to see the key differences between these two different kinds of subsidies, is while commodity subsidies are subject to a payment limit, and they are subject to a means test, and we know who gets them, and we can tell you that through our database at farm.ewg.org, Crop insurance subsidies are not subject to a payment limit, and so we do. There are some uh, policyholders who collect more than or receive more than a million dollars a year in premium subsidies. They are not subject to a means test, so millionaires and billionaires can receive crop insurance subsidies. In fact, the GAO found at least four billionaires who are receiving crop insurance subsidies. Anybody? Any of you here? No. Okay. And um, and uh, we don't know who gets them because you, the Congress, prohibited USDA from telling us, 
and we in turn can't tell you. So we know, so again, uh, these are important differences as you think about the reform options that will be debated um, in the Congress next week. Um, so one consequence of the current subsidy system is that, and this is a great chart from our friends at the American Enterprise Institute, is that the largest and most successful businesses get the lion's share of subsidies. And if you look closely at this chart and, and like live with it for maybe 10 or 15 seconds, you'll see that the top 10% of farms by sales, top 10% of farms by sales, get about 60% of all subsidies. And this includes both commodity subsidies and crop insurance subsidies. So, the, so by far the largest and most successful farms are getting the lion's share of subsidies. Um, when USDA and, and others have looked at this, what they further found was that the, the largest 3% of farms, or in the USDA typology, large and very large farms, get about 40% of all of these subsidies. And, and Chris and Darren will talk about these large and very large farms in a moment so you get a sense of how well off they are and might make you wonder why they're getting such a large share of the money. And then the the share that's going to the largest and most successful farms, these large and very large farms, or uh, the farms that have more than a, uh, more, are getting more than a million dollars a year in, in, in gross cash farm income, the, their share of subsidies, and it's the little green part on your chart, has grown dramatically since 1991. So in 1991, those large and very large farms received about 11% of all subsidies, and again, this is commodity and crop insurance subsidies, in 2015, they received about 34% of all subsidies. So not only are the largest and most successful farm businesses who by any measure are wealthy receiving most of the subsidies, their share of the subsidies is growing, has grown dramatically over time. Um, and then the next few charts are just to help you kind of uh, get a clearer picture about who gets all these subsidies. This chart shows um, just by crop and that's, uh, that the, the, uh, the measure here is billions of dollars. And you'll hear this a lot, the corn, wheat, soybean farmers get most of the money. But when you look at the next chart, and this was developed by our good friends at CRS, you'll see that it's a different story on a per acre basis. And that's something to be thinking about because I know there'll be amendments related to various specific crops that you'll be thinking about. And as you can see, on a per acre basis, um, this is that figure 12 chart that you have in front of you. Peanut, rice, and cotton farmers are doing much better than corn, soybean, and wheat farmers. So that's just something to, to be thinking about as we head into next week. So um, how am I doing on time? Good? Yeah, okay. So just so some reform options. These are, uh, I guess, the, the, uh, I'm not, I wasn't around for the 77 farm bill. Um, but uh, any, no one here was, were they? Oh, good. Okay. Any Talmadge uh, al alumni? No? Okay. Nobody knows who I'm talking about either. He was a senator from Georgia. Anyhow. Okay. So um, these, were, these are not, uh, these are, oh, Phil knows who I'm talking about. Thank goodness. Thank you for laughing, Phil. He was not around now. Okay. <laughs> for the Talmadge Farm Bill. Um, these, are, these, were, these are reform options that have been debated and have been included in many ways in past farm bills. So for example, having a limit on how much each farmer or each eligible, uh, each person who's eligible for farm subsidies can receive. Under current law, the, the limit is $125,000 per person. But as you'll certainly be hearing about in the coming week, um, that the way that payment limit, limit works 
um, it makes it easy to evade. So in addition to the farmer receiving $125,000, my spouse can receive $125,000, my brother can receive $125,000 if he has a financial stake and is actively engaged in the farm. His spouse can receive $125,000. In general, all of my immediate family members can receive $125,000 if they have a financial stake in the farm and they are actively engaged in the farm. One of the problems with the questions around payment limits, and I, and I hope we get into this during our Q&A, is what it means to be actively engaged in the farm. And despite efforts by the Congress in the 2014 Farm Bill to tighten that definition, um, the definition is such that uh, participation can include things like making marketing decisions and planting decisions and decisions that can be made regardless of whether you live on the farm or meet sort of any common sense uh, definition of working on the farm. Um, so there are a number of ways that uh, individuals are able to evade the $125,000 per person payment limit, um, even though they don't live or by any, any common sense definition of the word work on the farm. Um, and, and so Mr. Fortenberry and Senator Grassley in the last farm bill cycle, and if you go far enough back, Congressman Army, Phil probably remembers that, and others long gone, um, have also offered amendments to lower the payment limit, apply it to crop insurance, which, as you remember, does not have a payment limit, and further tighten what it means to be actively engaged in farming. Um, another reform option that really started in the 2002 Farm Bill is to subject subsidies to means testing. And again, just as a reminder, commodity subsidies, the subsidies that only go to, to the big crops, if you will, corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, rice, peanuts, that list that was on the first slide, they are subject to a means test. The first time Congress created that means test, it was a $2.5 million means test, which means, meant that you had to have adjusted gross income, or what you might think of as net farm income, of more than $2.5 million before you would become ineligible for subsidies. And as you can imagine, that didn't impact many people. Congress tightened the means test in 2008 and tightened it again in, in 2014, but the current means test is still effectively, if you're a farm couple, $1.8 million in adjusted gross income. So uh, that doesn't affect many people. The president, in this case, uh, has proposed, and there'll be, I presume there'll be other amendments to, to, to try, that you'll get to vote on next week, to further tighten that means test to $1 million per farm couple. So again, if you have net farm income or adjusted gross income of more than $1 million, which is a lot of money, uh, then you would no longer be eligible for farm subsidies. Other reform options, um, reducing crop insurance subsidies. Here again, the president has proposed to reduce the average premium subsidy, which as I mentioned is 62%, to reduce that average premium subsidy for crop insurance subsidies from 62% to 48%. That would save at least $8 billion, although there are higher estimates over 10 years. Capping commodity subsidies as uh, Congresswoman Fox proposed in, uh, in the 2014 uh, Farm Bill. Uh, presumably, there'll be amendments again to cap the, um, at 110% of CBO's estimates the amount that can go to commodity subsidies. Um, ending double dipping. So um, one thing that always blew my mind when I figured this out is that even though we have these, we have commodity subsidies, which can cost, you know, six, seven, eight billion dollars a year, and Crop insurance subsidies, which depending on the market can cost anywhere from five and a half to six to seven billion dollars a year, farmers can get both. And in many cases, 
your, your commodity subsidy payment and your crop insurance policy are paying you twice for the same loss. And so I'm, I'm, I know that there's been legislation introduced and maybe there'll be amendments filed to um, ensure that farmers aren't double dipping, aren't getting paid twice for the same loss. Um, there may also be proposals to reduce insurance delivery subsidies. So I've already mentioned now a couple times we pay on average 62% remember that of a crop insurance of a farmer's uh, premium subsidy. We not only pay farmers about five and a half billion dollars a year in premium subsidies, we also pay insurance agents about one and a half billion dollars a year in subsidies to write farmers' policies, and we guarantee insurance companies a 14% rate of return on the, on the policies that they hold through a reinsurance agreement between insurance companies and USDA. So we subsidize the farmers, we subsidize the agents, we subsidize the companies. Um, the, there may also be amendments offered to reduce the subsidies that flow to insurance agents, and I know Mr. Sanford has off, already filed an amendment to reduce the guaranteed rate of return or the guaranteed underwriting gains for you insurance nerds um, that insurance companies get by uh, offer, holding these policies. Um, and then the last reform that we'll see, uh, I, I expect will be some uh, reforms to increase transparency so that we can tell you, so the government can tell us and then we can tell you who receives not just commodity subsidies but also crop insurance subsidies. Um, one interesting thing that we did find when we most recently looked at our, our database was that in the 50 largest cities in the United States, there were about 18,000 subsidy recipients. Um, these are people who live in places like Manhattan or Malibu or Miami or I'm running out of M cities. And, um, and so who are getting subsidies, again, even though they don't live on the farm um, and don't meet any common sense definition of work on the farm, um, and that's just looking at the 50 largest cities. There's probably many more um, city slickers like me getting subsidies. So um, I'll just wrap up by talking a little bit about the House bill and um, some of the new loopholes that are added. So um, as I mentioned, um, and as you know from this chart, um, Congress has written into the statute uh, price guarantees for the lucky crops that are covered commodities. Um, the HR2 would, would increase those price guarantees. Um, in addition, uh, HR2 would also exempt some of those subsidies. I haven't mentioned them, but they're called marketing loan gains and loan deficiency payments from having to be subject to the $125,000 payment limit. Um, HR2 would also, in addition to making uh, my spouse and my brother and the rest of my immediate family eligible for subsidies, so long as they have a fiscal stake in the farm and are actively engaged in farming, this bill would also make cousins, nieces, and nephews and their spouses eligible for subsidies, which is why I've taken to calling this the 23andMe farm bill. Um, and then the last, uh, the last loophole that's created in HR2 would uh, change the treatment of corporations. So in general, there are sort of three kinds of farm operations. There are family farms and sole proprietorships, there are general partnerships or joint operations, and then there are corporations. And with, when it comes to partnerships, e if we formed a farm partnership, each member of our partnership would be eligible for $125,000 a year, and so would our spouses, so long as we have a fiscal stake in the farm and we're actively engaged in farming. 
corporations until this, until HR2, have always been treated as a single entity. They get $125,000. End of story. What HR2 would do would allow shareholders in that corporation or partners or members of that corporation to each receive $125,000, again, as long as they meet those requirements that they have a fiscal stake in the operation and they're actively engaged in farming, as such as it is. Um, and so those are, those are some of the big, and then the last thing I'll just mention is the bill also eliminates the means test. Remember I mentioned the $1.8 million means test that was created in the 20, was uh, tightened, if you want to call it that, in the 2014 Farm Bill, um, ex completely exempts some pass-through entities from being subject to that $1.8 million means test. So in general, the, what the, the House bill does is it increases price guarantees, it waives a payment limit for some subsidies, it allows cousins, nieces, and nephews to become now eligible for subsidies, and it waives the payment, the means test for some kinds of pass-through entities. Um, all ideas that run counter to the reform ideas that were included in the president's budget um, and have been proposed by uh, many of you. So why don't I stop there and turn it over to Darren? Is that right? Okay. Next we'll have Darren Baxt from Heritage Foundation. Thank you. Um, I want to thank Cato for inviting me to present. Thank you, Chris. Um, I want to thank all of you for coming uh, today and those watching online. It's, um, it's therapeutic to be able to talk about farm subsidy reform for me. Uh, when you work on farm subsidies as much as I do it, you know, therapy is needed, so this is helpful for me. Um, Heritage has been working on many, we've been working with many organizations. Um, across the ideological spectrum on farm subsidy reform. And over the past several years, I've um, been doing all kinds of things, including developing this book called Farms and Free Enterprise. It really, I think, provides a lot of background information and helps address some of the big questions regarding agricultural policy and farm subsidy reform. So this is a really important issue to us. It's, um, it's critical that this farm bill makes major reforms to farm subsidies. So my, my game plan is I'd like to take a, a bit of a step back on, and, and talk about three big picture questions um, instead of getting right into the weeds on these programs. And then I wanna talk about why we should even care about subsidy reform. And then finally, I wanna talk about a few reform ideas that are out there. The first kind of big picture question I wanna talk about is how would it look if conservatives and libertarian legislators try and reduce the food stamp safety net and improve the well-being of the poor by reducing dependence on government, but at the same time they expand the farm safety net and increase dependence on government by wealthy agricultural producers? Well, it wouldn't look good. Um, and unfortunately, I think that's what's happening as of now. Um, imagine trying to defend that action when if, so if we look at subsidies to like large family farms, and that's just one category of farms. There's bigger farms called very large farms too. So according to the USDA data, large family farms receive 32% of commodity payments and 34% of the crop insurance indemnities. 
Their median household income was $347,000. That's six times the median income for all U.S. households. Their median household net worth was $3.8 million. That's 39 times the median wealth for all U.S. households. Again, they're getting about a third of the subsidies. Now, this House bill, just practically speaking, is going to be attributed to conservatives because, at least as what's being discussed, is that liberals are not going to support this particular farm bill, at least as it is now. So there's nothing conservative, libertarian, or even remotely free market-oriented um, if you don't make major reforms to farm subsidies. Now, as is typical, every five years, the House Agriculture Committee comes out with their, their farm bill, and it's, it's kind of almost a wish list. It funnels as much money as possible to agricultural special interests as possible. And then it's up to House members um, to introduce amendments to try to rein in the committee. And it's maybe a spoiler, but they haven't had a lot of success uh, over the years to rein in um, the spending. Otherwise, if they did, I wouldn't be here today. Um, Usually, though, and like in the last farm bill, minor reforms do get passed in the, like in the House. And the Senate has some minor reforms last farm bill, too. But what will happen is those reforms will get removed out of conference. And even reforms last time that were included in both the House and the Senate bill got removed. So you want to make this bill the righteous bill if you're a conservative. You want, if this is going to be called a conservative bill, make it a conservative bill. So my big question, number two, is what should a properly focused safety net even look like? Now, look, I, don't, I think there's an argument, and we make, that we need to move away from subsidies altogether. But if you had a safety net, what it would look like? It, I think it would provide assistance to farmers when they experience deep crop losses only connected to a natural disaster. If I was talking to somebody just walking down the street and said, what is the safety net for farmers? What do we do? We, they would say, oh, we provide assistance to farmers when they really experience some big type of harm, something completely, completely out of their control. The, pro the problem is that's not really what the safety net is in this country. The truth is we provide assistance even when there's not deep losses but shallow losses. And we provide assistance regardless whether or not a farmer has a bumper crop doesn't have crop losses, doesn't have disasters. Basically, we've created a ma massive crony scheme to assist farmers, a small group of farmers, as I'll explain soon, to kind of operate in the marketplace. Third big question is, and this is something you'll hear all the time, is, but isn't agriculture different than other industries and therefore needs special assistance? And, and I think that's the, the wrong question, and let me explain. You know, the, the properly focused safety net that I just talked about is not really a radical idea because I, I don't need to look to New Zealand, for example, who made major reforms to their farm subsidies in the 1980s to, to show what a properly focused safety net would look like. I can look right here in the U.S. Because most agriculture and most farmers in this country don't receive assistance. And if they do, they don't receive assistance as relates to kind of um, market losses. They receive assistance at most when they have deep crop losses. So what's the issue then? Um, the Congressional Research Service released a report about a year ago 
showing that 94% of farm program support goes to just six commodities, corn, cotton, peanuts, rice, soybeans, and wheat. In other words, again, almost all the commodities out there, almost all ag production doesn't get any assistance. And it, it gets worse because these programs, these small number of commodities, get assistance through multiple programs, not just one. So the real question is, why do these small number of crops need so much assistance when almost every other commodity receives little to no assistance? So former American Farm Bureau uh, Federation President Bob Stallman captured the subsidy issue pretty well. As the Washington Post reports, this is what he said, quote, Stallman dismisses outright the claim that farmers couldn't survive without subsidy money. Why does the livestock industry survive without subsidies, he asks. Why is especially crop, that's fruit and vegetables and nuts, industry survive? And those are the right questions. And they, they manage to survive without subsidies. Why can't these other crops survive without? Not just subsidies. We're not even talking about that at this point. We're talking about just some reforms of the, of the subsidies. So I want to, at this point, talk about some of the problems with subsidies. And I'll kind of highlight it through discussing some of the Title I programs that Scott had mentioned. So in the, in the last Farm Bill, Congress got rid of a program called the Direct Payment Program, and that provided assistance to farmers regardless of whether or not they needed it or not. So instead of doing the wise thing and simply getting rid of that and not creating something new, Congress created the Agricultural Risk Coverage and Price Loss Coverage Programs, ARC and PLC. And this is classic. The ARC and PLC programs that replace direct payments actually are costing a lot more than the direct payment program would have cost. Um, that would be funny if it wasn't so sad. These programs are projected to cost or are costing about 80% more than was what was projected. So it was about a cost overrun of $13 billion. I'm not going to get into some of the details of how it worked because I think Scott covered, covered it. But basically the ARC program, the Agricultural Risk Coverage Program, gives a benchmark guarantee. You basically have a guarantee that you're going to have revenue of 85%. Um, it's called a shallow loss program. That's not my language. That's the language the agriculture folks use. In other words, we're, we're not simply addressing deep losses, shallow losses. We're trying to take away almost all risk. If, if I ran a business, and if, if any of us ran a business, and you don't have to worry about almost any of the risk, you're not going to be incentivized to take risky – you're, you're going to be incentivized to take risky decisions. You're going to be discouraged from innovating and improving your business. You're not going to look at new ways to manage risk on your own and identify private means of addressing risk. And, and that's the problem with, with most farm subsidies, and especially when it comes to shallow loss programs. The price loss coverage program sets a fixed price in statute for commodities, a select group of commodities. If those, and it's called reference prices, if a, the actual commodity price goes below that reference price, then payments are triggered. Um, the problem, this program highlights a really key problem because you can game the system by setting the reference prices so high that you effectively guarantee payments. And that's what's happening in this new NHR2. And it's actually what happened in the last Farm Bill. And what happens then is that farmers, instead of responding to what the market wants, they start to, respond, they start to farm the subsidies. They make planting decisions based on how to maximize subsidies. That's something 
that I don't criticize farmers for because that's what anybody would do because that's what the incentive is. Then there's the federal sugar program as part of Title I. And the program limits how much sugar can be sold in the U.S. and limits how much sugar can be effectively imported into the U.S. One of the claims you're going to hear is that the sugar program is a no-cost program, but I would say tell that to the consumers who pay about $3.7 billion a year or more in food, and tell that to the sugar-using industry who actually wind up losing jobs as a result of the sugar program. Also, there's so much focus on what programs in this farm bill are hurting the poor. Well, I, I can point to one program that does. It's called the Federal Sugar Program. When you drive up prices for basic needs like food, you wind up hurting low-income households the most. High food prices have a disproportionate impact on low-income households. So the, the lowest-income households spend a greater share of their after-tax income on food, 33%, than other households. And that includes, so if you compare that to the highest-income households, they only spend 8.7%. This is basically a regressive hidden tax on consumers. That's what the federal sugar program is. Some other problems with the subsidies, well, first of all, it costs a lot of money. So if we wanted to just simply talk about the crop insurance and the commodity programs, we're talking about $15 billion a year or so. We hear a lot about the fact that we need to help new farmers get into farming. Well, the subsidies themselves create barriers to entry for new farmers because they drive up land prices. And the biggest obstacle to get into farming is the land prices. So what we wind up doing is subsidies wind up making it more difficult for people to get into farming, and then the response by Congress usually is to spend more money, hundreds of million dollars, to offset the problem that Congress created in the first place. And that's what's going on with that. There's environmental impacts as well. And then there's the trade concerns that exist when it comes to subsidies. So in recent years, taxpayers have been have paid about $800 million or so to help subsidize the Brazilian cotton industry. And why? It's because of our trade-distorting cotton subsidies. So Congress actually wisely did, they, they excluded cotton from the ARC and PLC programs in the last Farm Bill. That was a way to try to address some of this potential trade retaliation from Brazil. So this Farm Bill actually would bring cotton into ARC and PLC. As a result, we're going to wind up risking potentially trade retaliation from Brazil. And ultimately, what will likely happen is we'll settle again with Brazil, where taxpayers are going to wind up subsidizing the cotton industry and the Brazilian cotton industry. I should also point out that even without cotton being added to Arkham PLC, cotton, as shown in one of the charts that, that Scott provided you, is cotton is one of the most heavily subsidized commodities already. So, so what are some of the reforms that should be addressed? So Scott talked a lot about some of the reforms. I'm just going to talk about some that I think that there's going to be some amendments today. Or, yeah, today. Um, unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be one on the double-dipping issue. I was hoping that there would be, so unfortunately I won't discuss that one. Um, one of the biggest and most important reforms is the one dealing with premium subsidies, reducing the 62% on average, premium subsidy to 48%. That was in the Trump fiscal year 2019 budget. That's a recommendation that's been identified by GAO. It's been a policy option identified by Congressional Budget Office. 
been bipartisan legislation. It's a well-accepted reform. And quite honestly, so, so farmers right now are only paying about a third of their premiums. It's not a lot to ask for farmers to pay, I don't know, half of their premiums for their crop insurance policies. The savings, well, I'm hearing different savings, but I, I thought it was more significant than $8 billion. Um, now, the critics will say this, this change will hurt farmers. So, so CBO analyzed what impact would this have by reducing the premium subsidy. So they looked at it from 62% to 47%, whereas the, the amendment that I'll discuss reduces to 48 Producers would insure one-half of 1% fewer acres as a result of this. So you go from 300 million insured acres to 298.5 million acres. Producers would reduce coverage of insured acres by about 1.5%. So they, they still have insurance and generous insurance. They just want to get as much coverage. So in other words, there would be virtually no impact on farmers. There would be billions of dollars of savings for taxpayers, and you'd have a common sense reform. The amendment is, from what I saw on the website, the Rules Committee site is amendment number 33 by Representative Norman would actually be the one that would reduce the premium subsidies the way I'm discussing. Scott mentioned um, the idea of a cap, a cap on the total cost of the ARC and PLC programs. In the last Farm Bill, the House overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly passed an amendment that would cap the total cost of ARC and PLC to 110% of the CBO projected cost. Unfortunately, that amendment got taken out in conference, like almost everything. If that, if that amendment had remained in place, that would have saved taxpayers $13 billion. So a new amendment this year would actually do the same thing. It would cap the cost of ARC and PLC to 110% of the CBO projected costs. That may save money or may not, but what it does is it provides protection for taxpayers so we don't really effectively have unlimited exposure when it comes to the ARC and PLC programs. And let's see. That, that amendment is number 12 and was sponsored, primary sponsors, Representative Burgess. One other amendment is amendment number 32. It's bipartisan and introduced in the lead Sponsors Representative Fox and deals with the federal sugar program. Look, I think the federal sugar program should be eliminated, but this reform does make this this amendment makes some reforms. And then finally, something that's not subsidy oriented and may not please Scott is um, <laughs> Amendment Number Seventeen, and Representative Herrera Butler and co-sponsored by Representative Gozar deals with the Waters of the United States um, rule and the definition of what Waters of the United States means um, in the Clean, Air, Clean Water Act. As you know, the Trump administration is trying to get rid of the WOTUS rule, but even if the Trump administration got rid of the WOTUS rule, a future administration can always get rid of the ideal rule that the Trump administration develops to come up with the same federal overreach that exists in the Obama administration. It is critical that the definition of waters in the United States gets defined in the Clean Water Act, the statute itself. That way we can assure long term that we protect property rights, state rights, 
and make sure there's no federal overreach by the EPA and the Corps that's existed for, for decades. So that is, you know, most farmers don't get subsidies, but almost every farmer, regardless of size or region, is impacted by the crushing regulatory burden. And if you talk to farmers, one of the biggest regulatory burdens is this WOTUS issue. And it hasn't just been because of the Obama administration WOTUS rule. It was a problem even before that and for decades. So this would solve that problem, hopefully, once and for all. So to, to conclude, you know, to conclude um, respect for farmers is not the same thing as respect for waste and being anti-market. Um, the ag interests are going to use scare tactics, myths, the romance of the farmer, um, and they're going to attack folks that want to touch the ag subsidies. Certain legislators are saying that any reform is a poison pill. I would argue that the House Farm Bill with its farm subsidies, that farm subsidy stuff, that's the poison pill. And it's up to you and hopefully the House members to actually start to fix this bill so it can somewhat be tolerable. And if it's going to be labeled as conservative, again, then make it conservative. Thanks. Thank you, Darren. Now we'll have Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute. Thanks a lot, uh, Scott and uh, Darren. I will try to be uh, quick. We're running a little over here. Try to leave some time for questions. Uh, let me get, give a bit of a, a broader uh, overview on some of these issues. Um, you know, federal de deficits are going to be over a trillion dollars next year. They're rising to probably two trillion ten years uh, from now. Uh, on our current course, we are headed for a financial and economic uh, disaster. We will eventually have to cut spending. We're going to have to cut spending in farm subsidies and food stamps. Uh, and many other things. People will say, well, the deficit's caused by the big entitlements, Social Security uh, and Medicare, uh, which is true. But, you know, if we can't cut programs that provide handouts to millionaires, how are we ever going to deal with tougher problems like reforming the big entitlements? So why does farming get subsidies uh, anyway? Uh, in America, we have a market economy. Uh, markets are risky. Businesses rise and fall and go bankrupt all the time. Uh, there's an amazing uh, Bureau, of, Bureau of Census uh, statistic that about 10% of all U.S. businesses disappear and go bankrupt every single year. Uh, unlike farm businesses, most businesses stand on their own two feet, uh, and they take on these big risks without a big government subsidy cushion. Uh, it's true that farm businesses uh, face a lot of uh, risks. Uh, they face uh, price fluctuations, for example. But think about all the other industries that face uh, uh, price fluctuations, uh, oil drilling and mineral extraction industries. Uh, think about the huge risks in the high-tech uh, industry. Uh, high-tech uh, businesses face these really unpredictable risks, whereas farming risks are pretty well uh, known, and farmers can plan ahead for them. Uh, the Trump administration uh, budget this year, while it has some uh, good reforms in it, as Darren uh, touched on, uh, uh, said uh, we need to maintain a strong safety net for farmers. But, you know, why can't farmers create their own safety nets? Um, farm risks are well known, and you can plan for them. If the corn farmer, uh, during years he's enjoying uh, high, high prices for his crops, he should pack money away uh, in the bank so that when prices are low, he can uh, withdraw um, for his family income. Uh, farms uh, do diversify and are increasingly uh, diversifying their income sources these days, which is a good thing. About three quarters of farm household income comes from off the farm today, and that figures way up over the decades. So that's a good thing. Farms are a lot more financially stable than they used to be. Um, farm debt levels have been low in uh, recent years, which is also a good thing. 
And there's interesting data uh, that I, uh, that I uh, cite, uh, like all my other data, in my uh, recent Cato uh, study on farm subsidies uh, about bankruptcy and farm bankruptcy. You know, the farm businesses uh, only go bankrupt at about one-third the rate that other uh, businesses in the economy. So to me, all these statistics uh, about the generally good finances on farms are, uh, suggest why we don't need to uh, subsidize these, uh, these households. Uh, as Darren and Scott touched on a little bit, uh, farms of high incomes uh, these days, despite uh, the, uh, the lower prices for some crops in recent years, uh, the most recent data from the USDA show that uh, average farm households uh, in this country earn 118000 a year, which is 42% higher than the 83000 a year by all U.S. households. So farm uh, households make uh, far above average incomes, and that's all farm households. As Darren mentioned, most farm uh, households actually don't get subsidies. It's really the subsidies are channeled to uh, the biggest and wealthiest uh, farms. Uh, just 2% of farm households are below the poverty line compared to 14% of all U.S. households. Uh, and a fascinating statistic that uh, EWG put together on their uh, great website, uh, they looked over a 10-year period and they found that there's 50, uh, farm, uh, 50 individuals on the uh, Forbes 400 wealthiest American list who receive farm subsidies. So there's 50 of these wealthy, wealthiest folks in America uh, were farm subsidy recipients. Uh, as uh, I think Scott mentioned, the insurance uh, uh, subsidy program is the largest farm subsidy program. There's no income limits on, uh, and uh, as Scott mentioned, that there's at least four recipients of uh, a crop uh, insurance subsidies that uh, are worth over a billion dollars. So here's, here's one interesting thing to think about when you're thinking about farm subsidies. One of the uh, coolest mechanisms in a market economy is capitalization. Uh, stock prices on Wall Street are the discounted present value of uh, the stream of future earnings that businesses are expected to earn. Well, it's the same with farmland. Farm subsidies uh, go to farmers, uh, but, but really the, uh, the, that, the, those, that stream of subsidies is capitalizing the price of farmland and, and has inflated the price of farmland. So farm subsidies is a bit of a, a misnomer. They're really landowner subsidies ultimately. That's the ultimate economic effect of, uh, of farm subsidies. Let me uh, touch on something that isn't usually discussed uh, uh, in farm subsidy discussions, and that is farms and taxes. Uh, if farmers were large payers of income tax uh, to the federal government, they could argue, well, we're covering the cost of our own subsidies by the taxes we pay uh, to Washington, but they aren't. Uh, farm businesses pay very little uh, income tax, which I was, uh, I was curious to find out in looking at the uh, statistics. 87% uh, of farms are sole proprietorships. Uh, others are partnerships and S-corporations. Just 3% of them are uh, big corporate farms that pay the corporate income tax. So the Department of Agriculture has actually produced a number of interesting studies over the year where they look at uh, the amount of uh, taxes that farms pay. And they've concluded uh, that income from farming is taxed more favorably than income from many other businesses. Uh, in fact, if you look at IRS statistics, uh, IRS stats show that aggregate farm losses year after year are much larger than aggregate farm profits meaning not that farms are losing money in reality, but that on their tax returns, they're reporting big losses, which wipes out their um, taxable income. And in fact, uh, most farms are able to take their farm business losses and use it to offset income from other sources. So the Department of Agriculture has concluded, quote, while many commercial-sized farmers uh, pay taxes on their farm income, 
farm sole proprietors in the aggregate pay little in federal income tax on farm income. So why is that? There's a whole bunch of provisions um, uh, in the tax code that particularly favor uh, uh, farmers. Generally, uh, these provisions allow farmers to push ahead their income in time and pull their expenses forward, which basically wipes out their taxable income in the current year. Uh, I'm not for raising uh, taxes on farms, but I do think in the current debate on farm subsidies, um, policymakers ought to recognize that farm businesses are already specially favored on the tax side of the federal budget, uh, even before we start talking about spending subsidies. Let me close with a few comments about food stamps, um, uh, which our other speakers didn't touch on. Uh, the, the big bill in front of Congress is called the Farm Bill, but actually, as you may know, only a quarter of the spending in the Farm Bill is for farm subsidies. The other three quarters is for food stamps. Uh, the House Republicans uh, have proposed some uh, modest food stamp uh, reforms in the, in the form of a work uh, or job training re requirement for some uh, recipients. Uh, we need much bigger reforms. Food stamp spending essentially quadrupled uh, from uh, George W. Bush's first year. Uh, they peaked in 2013 and they've fallen a little bit in the last few years. But you know we're in the ninth year of an economic expansion here. Food subsidy or food stamp spending uh, should have uh, should have fallen a lot more. So we need bigger uh, reforms. Uh, so the House puts in these work requirements, which would save about a billion a year. But at the same time, they would increase uh, the the bureaucracy uh, in the USDA uh, for job training programs by about the same billion dollars. So on net, there's no actual taxpayer savings uh, in the food stamp part of the um, Republican Farm Bill. Uh, Democratic Colin Peterson uh, uh, on, the, on the House Farm Committee says, quote, it mystifies me how the party that doesn't like government wants to make it so much bigger, unquote, talking about uh, the lack of uh, th this big uh, new bureaucracy that Republicans would make uh, for job training. Uh, so the Republican Farm Bill uh, needs some big uh, spending cuts, much bigger, uh, much bigger uh, reforms on both farm subsidies and food stamps. I think some of the uh, what Darren and Scott said about uh, farm subsidies is right. I will take any of those uh, subsidy reforms, uh, and, and even uh, I would like to see much bigger ones. So thanks a lot for coming. We're happy to to answer any questions you may have.